Hello, and welcome to Good Jewish Lover. I'm Rabbi Brent Spodek, and we'll be exploring in this episode and in every episode what we can learn about how to love each other better. I'm particularly thrilled this episode to have with us Dave Schildkrit, who creates amazing art under the name of Morning Altars, and in the course of doing that has become I'm not really quite sure how to describe you, an artist, a ritualist, a weaver of epic narratives in the sense of an understanding of how we make sense of our limited time on this earth. Day has written this incredible book, Hello, Goodbye, which I legitimately think is the most intelligent thing I've read in a long, long time about ritual and what it does and what it doesn't do and what we might hope it does. And in ways I hope we'll get into what it means to engage with ritual in America and the particulars of living in America. So, Jay, I am thrilled to be in conversation with you on this show. I'm so happy to be here, too. Thanks for inviting me. My pleasure. So we're going to jump in by taking a look at a story that has to do with naming. And part of the reason I was so drawn to that is both you and I, in ways I hope we'll get to, operate with names different than the ones we were given at birth. Yeah. And those dynamics show up in lots of our relationships, lots of our families. And so what we've got here is a text of Midrash, and Midrash is basically rabbinic fan fiction. If you know what fan fiction is, when somebody so loves Harry Potter, right, and is so excited by the book, they start telling different stories about what Harry and Hermione and all those folks did. So the ancient rabbis basically did that with the Bible. They told stories about the characters in the Bible that are nowhere in the Bible. But these stories, I think, illuminate something about the human experience. One of these stories is from a collection, a 12th century collection called Bamidbar Rabbah, which is just the big book of numbers. And this is the story. The story begins, so what was the wisdom of the first person? We find that when the Holy One wanted to create human beings, the first thing the Holy One did was consult the ministering angels and say, hey, should we make human beings? And the angel asked, well, what are they going to be like? And the Holy One said, you know what? It's funny. These human beings I want to create, they're going to be wiser than you are. And the angels are like, oh, yeah, we're angels. We're pretty smart. And the Holy One was like, I'll show you. And he brought in front of all of the angels, all of these animals, the wild beasts, the birds. And he said, what are they called? And the angels, well, I don't know. I've got no idea. And the Holy One said, all right, check this out. I'm not going to create this human being, this person, right? And now there's going to be a little bit of Hebrew wordplay because the Hebrew word for person, Adam, is the same as the name in English, Adam. So the Holy One creates this first person and brings in front of this first person all of the animals and says, what are these things called? And the human replied, this one, I think the name ox is fitting for this one. And this one, I think this one should be called donkey. And this one, horse seems like a fitting name for them. And this one, camel, lion, vulture, and on and on until Adam, until this first person named all of these creatures. And then the Holy One said, that's that's pretty good. And my friend, what about you? What should you be called? And the first person says, you should call me Adam. And the Holy One says, oh yeah, how come? And the first person says, because I am made of the Adama. I am made of the earth. And so I should be called Adam because I am made of the Adama. It's almost as if to say, my name should be earthling because I am made of the earth. 
And the Holy One says, huh, no kidding. Okay, great. And what about me? What should I be called? And the first person says, you should be called Adonai, which in, in Hebrew is master or Lord, right? And the Holy One says, oh yeah, no kidding. Why should I be called Adonai? And Adam says, because you are the master, you are the Lord over all that you created and seen. That's the end of the story. So we've got this incredible story, nearly a thousand years old, talking about the first human being naming animals and then naming himself and then even naming the Holy One. And Gay, you write so beautifully in here in ways I hope we're going to get to and tend to get to about the power of naming and what it means to choose a name. But I want to ask first, what jumps out at you at that story? What seems interesting or noteworthy from that story about Adam naming these creatures? You want to jump in the, the shallow end or the deep end? Let's jump in the deep end. We don't have time for small talk. Let's go right to the good stuff. This story, this fan fiction that you were mentioning, is actually coming from a deracinated imagination. Because what I think is true is that names belong somewhere. They're planted somewhere. They come from a people. They come from not just a people, but they actually come from a, a people's relationship to place, to seasons, to the certain ecosystem and to the animals of that place and the seasons of that place and the way that place expresses itself. And that particular place has its own names. They're not universal. They actually come from one place. So, you know, I'm trying to, in some ways, wonder with you about the relationship between names and places. Well, I think what you're saying is absolutely right on. And, I, and what I'm also hearing there is names and places and relationships. Exactly. Right. And that these names emerge out of particular relationships. And one of the things in this book that really made me fall in love with it is right here in the introduction on page seven. I'm just going to read this one sentence. Some of us in North America live every day of our lives in a collective amnesia that began when our ancestors arrived to this sweet land of liberty, forgetting the places, languages, names, and customs they came from in order to be folded into this great melting pot. And in so many ways, all of us, or many of us in America, are bereft of a cultural legacy, an intact cultural legacy that was rooted to a place, right? Even yeah. the story, I shared it in English, but of course it wasn't written in English. Exactly. Right? Because we now in the US are speaking in English. We're alienated from that part of our heritage. And you wrote in here how not so long ago, your ancestors and mine would have been speaking Yiddish, which is different than Hebrew, but certainly far more connected to Hebrew than English is. Yeah. And so I think in one way, this text has a feel of it, of being universal and unconnected to place. But I think that's actually in part a function of how I'm telling the story now in English at, at different moments in time, when different sort of cultural structures for better and for worse were more intact. I wonder if it wouldn't have felt as universal and abstract, but particular because it would have been written in the language that people spoke. And so much of what I find myself doing and what I perceive you as doing, and I don't want to mischaracterize you, but is creating an American spiritual vernacular that draws on our antecedents, um, but isn't exactly trying to recreate them. 
-hmm. almost, I, I'm imagining, um, I've got kids who play with Legos a lot. And when they put the Legos away, which only happens sometimes, they put the Legos away half built, right? And the first time we played, this thing was a castle. Then they put the Legos in the bin and they sort of fall apart. And then the next time we play, there's that half built structure. And what last time was a castle now becomes the corner of a rocket ship. Mm -hmm. It's the same bricks and it's some of the same structures as the last time they were played with, but different. And so I see so much of what you do, what I try to do in a different context is say, okay, how do we take what we have from the past yeah. and not try to recreate the past, but use it to build something new now, which can only be particular to our place I think we have to, in order to do that in some capacity, you first have to acknowledge that you're holding broken pieces. Absolutely. That's it. I mean, you have to start there, right? You have to start that like what you have in your hands once was whole and now is broken. If you want to recreate it, that's great. But to do that, you have to in some ways acknowledge the brokenness to bring it back together. By the way, that's the etymology of the word art. RT, the Proto-Indo-European word means to put back together again, like Humpty Dumpty. Huh. You know, art helps to do that. It actually helps to bring things back together. But to do that, you have to acknowledge the broken pieces. So in order to make meaning, you have to recognize in some capacity that what you're trying to make meaning from is or has been forgotten or broken or made unmeaningful or whatever what it's it's in some ways it's come apart and the ritual yeah. is about putting it back together again it's not bad forgetting is not bad it's human it happens all of the time but actually it's the putting it back together again which is something that is more cultural cultures especially intact cultures they have ceremonies and rituals that include the forgetting into the ceremony and the ritual. It's saying it's not bad. We just have these mechanisms to help us remember again. And so the broken pieces that you were talking about, about the Lego, it's like, yeah, we have to reimagine our rituals, actually. They're alive. And I, I don't know about you, but I've been a part of my fair share, especially Jewish, I've been a part of my fair share of purposeless rituals or rituals that are confusing oh God, yes. or they won't get off the ground or they don't mean anything or whatever, you know? And so, of course, rituals need to be reimagined. They need to be recreated. They need to be repurposed. But you also, in order to do that, part, half of the conversation has to be, oh my God, I'm holding something that was once whole and it's not anymore. And then to really encounter what you're holding and to let yourself be a bit heartbroken about it, to let there, let yourself feel the grief that what was once whole is broken. And yet you have the shards, you're holding the shards and you can do something with those shards. What are you going to do? I, that's, you know, I wrote a whole book about it. You know, what you could do, make something meaningful, make a, make a feast that could feed you and your people. But you have to acknowledge the brokenness first. And that's how you find your way back into anything that could carry some meaning. So I want to share with you. So some years ago, I sat a Zen meditation retreat at Auschwitz, which was, you know, on the face of it, a very intense experience. And it was in the context of a Zen order, but in a somewhat syncretic way in ways that made sense to me. I was putting on my uh, my talus and tefillin, my my ritual Jewish garb, the the prayer shawl and the black straps that get wrapped around the arm, 
And while I was standing there in Auschwitz, the leather strap that I was wrapping around my arm literally broke in my hand. Mm. And you know, it's a leather strap, it doesn't break. Mm -hmm. And so I was standing there flummoxed, uncertain what to do. So I just tied the two pieces back together and went on with my, my morning ritual of prayer and meditation, thinking that at some later moment I would repair them. Mm -hmm. But as I reflected on it and just sort of had that experience, I left the, the strap broken and tied together, yeah. in some ways feeling exactly what you're describing, yeah. that as an American rabbi, I am an inheritor of a ruptured tradition. Yeah. And Auschwitz is one of a number of places where we could locate that, that rupture happening. And that what I do, what I try to do, is tie together what of the tradition, what of our lineage is meaningful and powerful today, and yeah. tie it, literally tie it to life here in this context, not in Europe, not in early 20th century Europe, but in early 21st century America. Yeah. Because you know what an example, you see examples of people that are still trying to, to make 17, the 1700s work. Oh, for sure. It's like they're, you know, you're literally watching, you know, kind of like a reenactment or like a, a, a preservation of a time that's gone. It's like a ghost, you know, and you could see that. I want to say two things, by the way. Please. First off, beautiful story. Thank you so much for sharing that. That's a really powerful story. Um, and it touched me. And it reminded me of, of two things. First off, I'll just say, do you know the word kintsugi, the Japanese tradition of, of repair? Repairing bloke of things with gold. There's a Japanese cultural tradition of, instead of when pottery breaks, cups and bowls break, instead of throwing it away, you're actually repairing the, the ruptures. And instead of trying to hide where, the, where it broke, you're actually, you're lining it with gold so that the rupture actually is accentuated. You're beholding it. You're basically saying this is part of the story of the bowl now, right? You're not trying to hide it and it's not garbage anymore. You're actually continuing to use it with the rupture included. So that's story number one. Number two, the other thing that came to mind in what you were saying was, did you get a chance to see on Off-Broadway the Yiddish version of Fiddler on the Roof? Yes, yes, before the pandemic. Okay, so I saw that with my family, talking about seeing, talking about a, fam a ruptured family, my family and I saw it together. And those of you that didn't see it, but you're familiar maybe with Fiddler on the Roof, the end of act one, the wedding is interrupted by a pogrom. And the Cossacks basically come in with fire and rifles and they're, they tear apart the pillows. And anyway, on, in this Yiddish version, beautiful uh, let me set this up actually the set of the of the of the production was very simple it was just parchment paper like a torah and then the backdrop just said in huge hebrew letters it just said torah that's it that was the whole scene the set and the last thing that happens before the end of act one is one of the cossacks comes and rips the parchment in half so that you're ending act one with the word torah ripped in half and then act two, while you go, you like drop the curtain and then act two begins and the curtain raises and it's Torah again, except they sewed it back together. They sewed the rip back together. It's not that different from your to fill in experience, right? It's like 
How, how do we, what do we do with a broken culture? What do we do when our people are ruptured, when our culture is ruptured, when our rituals are ruptured, when our language is ruptured? What do we do? Do we abandon it? Do we throw it away like the shards of the bowl? You know, do we try and hide the rupture? Like I see so much of that happening in the North American Jewish community. So much hiding of the rupture. You know, like it's not there or something like that. It's crazy. The thing that's like never talked about enough is like, what are we doing about the trauma that we're carrying, especially around like the Holocaust? You know, so, but then the third option is to beautify the rupture. Mm -hmm. What would it mean if we drew attention and adornment and beauty and grief and praise to the rupture instead of trying to hide it or throw it away, or make it like it's not happening, or fear it, or be traumatized by it? What if our purpose right now was to, to not just sew the Torah back together, but to use golden thread? I love that image, and I, I'm, I'm really, really drawn to it. Now, there are so many directions I want to go in. The first place I want to go is talking about making space for that grief. And, you know, it's an odd thing about the Holocaust, because on the one hand, the Jewish community certainly puts a lot of energy into remembering the Holocaust, but often you should remember the Holocaust because, and therefore you should do X, Y, and Z, whatever outcome. Remember, never forget so that it doesn't happen again, but the focus isn't on what are the consequences of it having happened? (laughs) That's the question. Yeah. And something you said here, um, uh, this is right again in the introduction on page three, over the years, and especially since my father's death 10 years ago, I have been practicing grief and grieving as a skill and capacity, a way of being with the way things are, despite my preferences for how I want them to be. Yeah. And I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about grief and grieving as a skill and capacity. Sure. Grief is, if you, if you think of it like two wings of a bird, grief is one wing and love is the other, right? Grief is love. You're grieving the things that you've lost and you're loving. Love is you know, essentially praising the things that you have not yet lost, you know? And so grief is love and it's not an affliction. This is a skill. This is a, a major lesson that one of my teachers, one of my robs in the world have taught me, Stephen Jenkinson, amazing human being, master storyteller, great rememberer of things forgotten, author, etc. And he's taught in the death trade for, you know, 25, 30 years and written many books on death and dying in North America and how the culture of North America is grief illiterate and death phobic. And so when we're talking about grief, the culture sees it as something to get under or get over or get through because it doesn't necessarily inform our capacity to be productive, right? So, you know, and we have certain, we have a lot of evidence in that in the culture, you know, how much time do you get off when someone dies? You know, it's like how, how much are we trying to get back to normal? You know, we just went through the pandemic. It's like, we didn't give our, how much grief was, I mean, so much loss, very little grief. What during the pandemic, by the way, I put this in the book, I saw so many headlines pleading from the New York times, the Harvard review pleading for more rituals because the culture was in an undertow of grief. But the grief is love, and it's a recognition that what you have right now is impermanent, and what you've lost has always been, and yet you still love it even more so. And it's a skill to walk in the world like that. You know, It's almost easy to walk in this culture 
forgetting that or trying to avoid that, you know, that most people are spending their days in a trance of, of grief avoidance. Absolutely. So it's therefore a skill to walk carrying the remembrance of how fragile and impermanent this whole agreement is. Like, for instance, we want to talk Jewish. Every day you wake up, and I say modani every single morning. Yeah? Because some people yeah. didn't wake up to say it, but I did. And there's beauty in that. There's beauty in that prayer, but there's also heartbreak in that prayer. And it's both. Because this might be the last time I say it. I don't know. And it was the last time for some people. So there's grief and praise. Praise that I got to wake up. I have another day ahead of me. I get to breathe this air. I get to drink this water. I get to have my friends. I get to go in the garden. I get to, you know, I have all of these things that I've been granted. I've been on the receiving end of in life. On one hand, this is the bird analogy. Sure. And on the other hand, some people did not wake up this morning. And I might not wake up tomorrow morning. I don't know. There's great mystery in that. So the prayer is a bridge. It's bridging us towards this sense of grief and praise, praising what we have and grieving what we've lost and grieving what we might not have anymore and praising what we've lost. Yeah. I mean, I think living with that awareness, and this is why I find the work you're doing in articulating a new American spiritual vernacular is because on the one hand, I think that the reality of death and the reality of mortality is at one level more than we can bear. And I think one of the things that religion has done, or certainly pre-modern religion, was give people a framework in which they could confront and deal with the reality of mortality in a manageable way. And one of the realities of modern life, and this is what you talk about in your introduction so powerfully, is that we are, for all sorts of reasons, including abuses of those religious structures, we are alienated from those meaning-making structures, but we still have the need to make meaning. We still have a need to ritualize and deal with death in a manageable way so that we're neither denying it nor wallowing in it but honoring it and respecting its place in our lives. I mean, in some capacity, I would speak about it with, with a little bit more fervor. I would just say okay. it's carrying the weight, the burden beautifully, the burden of the fleetingness of our existence, of our culture. You know, I mean, it's very heavy. It could be very debilitating. It could be disorienting. You know, it could be overwhelming. It could be, it could just like wreck people, right? Properly so. It should. Sure. It should wreck you. And then what? You know what I mean? Like, so are you just going to be wrecked? Because we got something to do with that. So the thing is, though, is most people are trying to bypass the wreckage. Sure. And so the, the real skill is our capacity to both carry that that wreckedness my teacher calls it being wrecked on schedule being able to be properly you know wrecked and at the same time what are you doing with it what are you making with it i'll give you an example you know when my father died 11 
plus years ago. Through my brokenness, I also went through a pretty significant breakup in the same year. Through my brokenness, which I could not, I couldn't socialize, I couldn't work that while I was crying all the time. Through my brokenness and my capacity to just sit under a tree with my dog and start to like play with leaves and berries and flowers, this practice came through that I now call morning altars, which I've been teaching tens of thousands of people, you know, this capacity to make art out of nature, impermanent art out of nature as a ritual, as a a tool for meaning making. That gift came through my wreckage. My capacity to be wrecked was informing the gift, you know, and that's the thing is like, we have to do something with the shards. In my book, I wrote a chapter called, I think it was called Rituals for Crisis. Is this? Yes, a global or national crisis. And my inspiration was actually the Kintsuji Bowl. This is. Right? And to actually break something, because for instance, the pandemic, so much, so much was broken. So much was broken. I don't know about you, but my mom's mental health declined significantly during the pandemic. So, so much was broken, right? And then the rituals basically break something so you can symbolize and see what's actually happening before you. And then sit with the shards, put it on an altar. Don't get rid of them. Just sit with the brokenness and maybe even label them. So I put in the ritual, like on each shard, write something you've lost and let that be for just a little bit. And then start putting it back together. And then it becomes a ritual bowl, not just a regular bowl. It becomes something that carries some meaning. It becomes something deeply meaningful, right? The interesting thing, I want to say word-wise, you know, I used the word crisis before. Do you know the etymology of that word? Uh, Not in English. It means to discern. It has nothing to do with apocalypse or emergencies or anything like that. It's basically just saying this is a time where you need to discern what was from what is. Because you saw it during the pandemic. Everyone was like in this like normal, normal, where's the normal, normal, right? They were just trying to get back to the thing, to the whole bowl. They didn't want to acknowledge the shard, the brokenness of it, because that would be too, there would be too much grief in that, right? And, And people in our culture are very scared of that. So... Crisis means discernment. It's a time where we need to make distinctions and notice what was whole and what's now broken. And then you used the word management before. And then we can manage that. We can manage the wreckage of what life has dealt us. And that's very much a culture's job to teach its people, to offer its people. And it's very much through the mechanism of ritual and ceremony. You know, bad ritual is placeless. It's timeless. Good ritual is all about, it's like the vibe of Shekhyanu. It's all about time and place. What's happening now? What do you need now? What's wrecked now? And how do we put it back together now? I so appreciate that sense of the immediacy of now, to borrow a phrase. Part of the reason what you wrote about naming resonated with me so deeply, you actually wrote about it a number of times. There are the three chapters you mentioned, the giving a name to a baby, choosing a name for yourself, and changing your last name. And I would uh, 
respectfully submit there was actually a fourth time. It's the very first line of the book. Yesterday, she forgot my name, oh, yeah. a name yeah. she gave me, there you go. a name yeah. she's been calling me since I was born. Just to give your audience some context, like my mother has dementia and the beginning of the book basically asked the question, what do we do? What do I do when my mother forgot my name for the first time? You know, because I yeah. tried to carry on as if it was normal that my dad, I had things to do that day. I had places to go. I had meetings to go. And then like, you know, she actually said to me, like, who are you again? And then, you know, within a few, within a mo minute, we hung up the phone. And then I was like, how the fuck am I supposed to carry on with my day? I don't know how to do this anymore. You know? Sure. And that's the, that's what we're talking about is like the crisis in that moment for me was distinguishing this night, this moment is different than all other moments. What do I do right now to mark this distinction and make it holy or holy? So sometimes we face crises, these seismic moments from things that happen outside of our control, right? Illness happens, dementia happens, political upheaval, epidemics. Sometimes, though, with names, we choose names because of a different moment in our life. And, you know, I, I chose, so when I got married, my wife's maiden name is, I guess what we call it, is Kaimowitz. And as a way of honoring that and incorporating that into my life, I changed my middle name and I started using my middle name, which I never used previously, and changed my middle name to Chaim in a, in a ritualized way. Okay. And in some ways, it was only reading this book and thinking about it and thinking some of the changes, um, my, my oldest kid changed her name, that it gave me space to think about what that might have been like for my mother. Mm. You know, it's not so common for a man to change his name when getting married. Mm. And my mom gave me that name. And, you know, now we've been married over 20 years. I look back and think, I wonder if I could have, if I should have honored the name that I had. I celebrated the name I was taking on, but I never did what you talk about so beautifully in the ritual about honoring the name I had had until that point. And I'm wondering how you think about changes that come about because of things outside of our control, right? Things that we have to accept and learn how to make whole as you're talking about, and how to think about those moments in our life where we choose to make some sort of break from the past. We choose a different name to mark, or as you talk about, or you quote uh, Pawnee Elder uh, James Murray talking about climbing up. How do we think about, it's not that we're forced to abandon the past, but we're actually choosing to do that because there's new growth in front of us. You know, I teach a lot about slowing down in all of my work. Slowing down with sure. nature, slowing down with our creative impulses, slowing down with ritual meaning making, slowing down with a hand ma making things by hand. I teach a lot about slowing down in the midst of a culture that teaches a lot about speeding up. Absolutely. And, and part of the reason I teach a lot about slowing down is so that we can wonder not just where we're going, but how things came to be. If we want to make change, which I do, I'm on, I mean, that's my, that's my, the drum I'm banging for sure. 
if we want to make change, we have to, in some ways, recognize where did what we're wanting to change come from? What's the story of that? Who gave it to us? Where did it travel from? How did it get to be this way? What well, is now old, maybe not too long ago, wasn't. And it had a journey sure. or a personality. And, right? and yet we're, we have a mantra in our culture, which we're all very, very much under its spell, which is like out with the old and with the new. Sure. You know, so much so that you can see it all around you, you know, which is fine. I understand the, the attraction towards the new and the novel. I mean, I ha I'm an artist. I'm looking for the new and the novel all of the time. I don't want to keep on repeating myself in the same patterns, right? That is my job. At the same time, what would it look like if we cultivated more presence and curiosity and learned the story of how things came to be how they are? so that it can inform us about how to change. We need to learn where things come from, slow down with them, get curious with them, get a bit heartbroken or you know whatever comes through with that which we're looking to change and really recognize, you know, it's like a, it's like it's like how can we redeem not just the old things but even the elders in our midst. Yes. You know, rather than putting them someplace away from us because they're not, they're not, you know, giving us the productivity or the functionality that the young are giving. So what I'm looking to do, number one is slow down with the old things and really consider them. Yeah. Can, that's number one. Number two, the other thing that I do a lot in this chapter and in many chapters is about trying to make it more than you. Absolutely. So that's why I used originally the word bestow, which is like, and by the way, the I'll come back to that word in just a second, but the beginning of the first name chapter, changing your first name, I immediately show my hands. And I'm basically yeah. like, I almost didn't write this chapter. I almost didn't write this chapter because I don't know how I feel about changing your first, you choosing to change your first name. Because so much of, in the past, uh, the way names changed were that you did something worthy or different or remarkable and the community that you're in saw you witnessed you do that or heard about you do that and that the name changes so that others people can recognize how you've changed and acknowledge your changedness in the midst of the community and so you're deeply tied to your people through your name not just your living but your ancestral people and so changing names, you know, what I try and do a lot is like, try and not make it your individual choice. See if you can like have your people give you this name, even if you chose it, see if you can involve your friends or your family to get, you know, if you feel like a new name's coming through, can you bring in other people as opposed to, you know, choosing it yourself? I want to ask if you're comfortable sharing, could you talk a little bit about your process and journey about choosing to go by day and what was involved for you in making that shift? Yeah, it's very simple. My brother, when I was five years old, called me Day Day. And that stuck for a while and then disappeared. And, and then I went through a very... You know, in retrospect, some things appear unfortunate, but I guess you sometimes have to go through the unfortunate places in order to come to the fortunate places. But I went through, I'd say like a, a real 
a real deep dive into kind of universal new ageism in my early 20s. As we do. I, I was a very religious Jew from uh, about 12 to 22. And then I came out of the closet and put Judaism down in that way for a minute. But I needed to have a connection with God, with spirit. And so the thing that, that turned me on at that time was more of a universal relationship with with spirit. And so that name started to come through that time. But it was a memory of something that I was called as a kid. And it seemed to stick stick a little bit and stick better than the than the name that my mother and father gave me. Even though in the family still, my grandmother, who's 96, my aunt, who's 80, I mean, they they can't refer to me as day. Even my aunt, the way she writes it is she writes D-A-Y dash V-I-D because they're holding, a, they're holding a certain kind of memory of the name that I was given. Yeah, I see that. I know we're running short on time. I want to, if we can, jump back to the dynamics of cultural appropriation. You know, in the story we looked at, right, Adam was naming these animals in a particular place in a particular time. And those aren't the names we call them in America anymore. And there's a whole separate conversation in Israel about the revitalization of Hebrew and that sort of return to place. But one of the things I was thinking about in the part where you were writing quite strongly and appropriately of warning against cultural appropriation and the longing that folks who are disassociated from an intact culture might have for cultures that are intact, what I found myself thinking about, and I, I'm curious how this sounds to you, um, so my wife, who, thank God, is alive and well, she had leukemia, and she's alive today because of a bone marrow transplant. She had a traumatic experience and then literally had somebody else's bone marrow transplanted into her body, and that's why, thank God, she's alive and healthy today. And I was thinking about, you know, particularly the Jewish journey through the 20th century, through the Holocaust, and obviously all that came before that. And thinking about, certainly in my practice, I mean, as I mentioned, I went to Auschwitz in the context of a Zen Buddhist retreat, mm -hmm. and thinking about, on the one hand, absolutely recognizing the dangers of cultural appropriation, of picking up something you don't know anything about because it seems cool, but wondering if there's another framework of thinking about cultural transplantation, particularly for a people, I'd say, such as ours, but not only ours, who've been significantly traumatized to say, okay, you know, the Holocaust killed a third of the Jews and 80% of the rabbis, 80% of the teachers. And so what we're building now in America necessarily has to take transplantation from other cultures in order to rebuild our strength, not in an appropriative way, but in a way that says we're going to honor what this is and take advantage of it to strengthen our own path. And I'm wondering if that's at all a viable framework for an honorable intercultural exchange, such as between Judaism and Buddhism, or I'd say, you know, between Judaism and indigenous cultures or indigenous mindset in your book. When has it been different than that? I mean, cultures are always trading with each other and always inspired by each other. And I mean, look deeply into the roots of Judaism and I mean... Sure. So we're severely informed and inspired and, and thieving sometimes in other cultures, rituals and languages and, and customs and making them our own. I mean, what's, what's different right now than, than then? 
nothing. So then what what would the difference be between an illegitimate cultural appropriation and a legitimate uh, cultural inspiration? Well, I think first and foremost, you know, you use the word longing, which I think is a very kind word to use. Um, the word in the book that I use is starvation. Yes. And I think that cultural appropriation is appropriation in the hands of a, of a starving person who's who's so hungry for something meaningful and something cultural that when they're in the presence of something that carries any kind of nourishment, they can't help but want to f- not just, you know, take, but, you know, stuff themselves. Yeah, gorge themselves. Because, because the hunger is so profound inside of them, right? So... I think if we're talking about appropriation, we're really talking about exploitation to the point of like, I'm so hungry that I will devour not just the food, but you as well. And so I'm able in some way, at least right now, to be able to look at another culture and to also see its value and to also see that it's, you know, that it, it is feeding its people, just like my culture has been feeding me and our people. Right. And that we can like, we can share, but I'm not going to show up to that feast empty handed. And I'm sure as hell not going to show up starving. Yeah. I do want to ask. So just by, by way of closing something that, you know, a, a new ritual, I suppose, uh, that's emerged in my family is on Friday nights at our Shabbat table. We all go around the, the eight of us around the table and share what we call our pegs. The moments in the recent past when we've been proud, when we've been embarrassed, and when we've been grateful. And if you're comfortable sharing, I'd love to know moments from your recent past when you felt proud of yourself, when you felt embarrassed, and when you felt grateful. (laughs) Let's see what I can get. So um, pride. Well, there's been a lot of uncertainty in my midst. A lot. A lot of uncertainty around home, a lot of uncertainty around finances, and a lot of uncertainty. I have a new nephew coming in, and birth is always an uncertain... Well, it hasn't happened yet. Bashat is what we actually say. May it happen at the right moment. Yeah. So I think my pride is in my capacity for resilience. And having been knocked down quite a bit lately and continuing to stand back up, and to stand back up with a certain sense of, of remembrance of where I am, who I am, what I'm doing. And um, so I'm proud of, of my capacity for resilience lately. Um, embarrassment, there's so many, my friends. There's so many. <laughs> I'd say um, embarrassment is, <laughs> okay, this morning I was dancing in the shower and for some reason, my phone had called my brother in the middle of it. Like, <laughs> I think Siri, like, did something and made a phone call. And my brother was, like, listening to me singing and dancing in the shower on the phone. That was embarrassing. And then the third was one Was it a what? regular voice call or a FaceTime? It was a regular voice call, thank God. Okay. so at least, But at the least phone was that, down yeah. looking up, so... <laughs> Um, and gratitude is the last one. Yeah. Yeah. I'll say this, you know, I'm, I'm grateful to meet you and I'm grateful to have this conversation today. And I don't take it for granted that 
that another person, especially another Jew, would be interested in these kinds of conversations. And to be able to, to look back and look forward and to reimagine our place at the edge, at the frontier of things. So I'm grateful to, to be asked good questions. I'm grateful to be, um, to be in this epic wondering with you today. And thank you for helping me remember myself and remember, remember what turns me on, what, you know, where the things that like, that, that guide me and lead me. And so thank you. I'm, I'm grateful for this conversation. Well, thank you. I am incredibly grateful. I'm grateful for the work you're doing in the world. I'm grateful for this book and I'm grateful for this time with you today. And I very, very much hope that somewhere in our wanderings and our journeys, uh, we get to play together in person and create something beautiful together. I would really, really welcome that in whatever circumstances that comes to pass. Amen. Amen. Shekhianu. Good, good to be at this moment Amen. Thanks for joining us. You can learn more about Good Jewish Lover, the Torah of Relationships, and learn about other in-depth learning opportunities at pardes.org.il. And you can find me, Rabbi Brent Chaim Spodek, on Instagram and Facebook, or get in touch at brent at pardes.org. Please share your thoughts about the show, ideas for future guests, or texts you'd like us to explore. Special thanks to David Gutbazal and Jordan Steifman of Pardes, and Johnny Taylor of Beacon AV Lab for audio engineering. Thanks for joining us, and I look forward to learning with you next time about how we can all work to become good Jewish lovers.